You're listening to Bird Note Presents, long-form storytelling about birds and the ways we humans connect with them. I'm Ashley Ahern. Rachel Carson is known best for writing one book, Silent Spring. It was a searing condemnation of toxic pesticides and how they hurt the environment. And when the book was published in 1962, it was full of brand new, pretty shocking information for most Americans. Silent Spring led to a radical shift in national pesticide policies, and Rachel Carson became a founding hero of the environmental movement we know today. But before all that, Rachel Carson built a summer house. It was at the edge of a cliff on the coast of Maine on a little island called Southport. And it was on that island that Carson met a woman named Dorothy Freeman. This is the story of Carson and Freeman's relationship and the birds they loved. There was one type of thrush in particular, known as the viri, that bound the two women together in love and wonder for the natural world and for one another. Liza Yeager brings us this story. I grew up hearing a lot about Rachel Carson, and I felt like I pretty much got the point. Like, I knew the basics. Anti-pesticides, wrote Silent Spring, pretty doom and gloom. But recently, I heard this story that made me rethink all that. It starts with this tide-pooling trip. It's 1953 on Southport Island in Maine. Carson's in her mid-40s. She's just built her summer house. And it's her first time meeting up with her new island neighbors, a couple named Dorothy and Stan Freeman. The Freemans are fans of Carson's nature writing, and they've been married for almost three decades that year. Stan Freeman is an amateur photographer, and you can imagine that as the three of them set out that day, he might have started taking photos of slippery rockweeds stacked upon the granite, fingers of algae, sea anemones, like the trunks of a miniature forest with pink and brown tentacle branches. And maybe Stan was able to capture on camera what was happening between Rachel and Dorothy that day as they peer into the pools together, crouching close, side by side looking down into these whole tiny worlds. No one knows exactly what happened that day at the tide pools. The archive is incomplete. It's all pieced together, scraps of understanding. One thing we know, Dorothy Freeman and Rachel Carson only spent a total of six and a half hours together that summer. That was a number they counted later. And the other thing, the important thing, by mid-fall, when Rachel and the Freemans had all left the island, Rachel back to Maryland, where she lived with her mother during the year, and Stan and Dorothy Freeman to Massachusetts, Rachel and Dorothy have started writing these letters, pages and pages long. And this is really how their relationship develops, is through the medium, you know, of the post. This is Lita Maxwell. She's a political science professor at Boston University, and one of the things she studies is the relationship between Rachel Carson and Dorothy Freeman. She says those first letters after the summer on the island are kind of formal, getting to know you stuff. Dear Miss Freeman, I too feel a strong bond of common interests, and that we have the same feeling about many things. Sincerely, Rachel L. Carson. But pretty quickly, that changes. Anyway, perhaps we have both been a bit crazy, but I think that the rapid flowering of our friendship, the headlong pace of our correspondence, 
reflects a feeling for the lost years and a desire to make up for all the time we might have enjoyed this. They get this. very quickly into letters that early. where they're starting with darling, right? Talking about how much they love each other. Will you forgive me for laughing when I read your description of waiting for the mailman Monday to see if it would be there? Just as if my handwriting hadn't been appearing in your mail practically every day. But my dearest love, always, Rachel. By December, Rachel and Dorothy are writing multiple times a week, or sometimes multiple times a day. When you sit down to write my letters, do you sometimes feel overwhelmed by the impossibility of saying all there is in your heart? I wonder say? if I'll ever get used to the fact that you think my thoughts before I say Maybe them. Maybe there will be word from you tomorrow. And guess what? I love you, Rachel. For most of this early correspondence, we really only have Rachel's side of it. Many of Dorothy's letters were thrown out. She and Rachel actually burned a lot of them together. But there is one scrap of an early letter from Dorothy to Rachel, and she writes this question. Don't you ever marvel at yourself, finding yourself in such an overpowering emotional experience? I read a whole book of the letters, and in almost all the early ones, that's what it sounds like. Like, Rachel and Dorothy are overpowered, overwhelmed, like just gushing, sitting in the sparkle of this new relationship which feels super recognizable, like the thing where in the first moments of a really important relationship, you just can't stop talking about it, even if everything you're saying sounds totally over the top. So much. They write so much about their own relationship. They talk all the time about, you know, why do we feel this way? <laughs> um, how can we understand what we feel? For Rachel and Dorothy, the questions and the analyzing, they're particularly constant. And it's not just that. Rachel and Dorothy start coming up with a whole lexicon to talk about their love. Like, they'd fold two letters into the same envelope. One for reading out loud to their families, along with another, more private letter that they'd call the apple. And with even more intimate letters, they'd write, for the strong box, which meant destroy this after you read it. They started referring to Rachel's house in Southport as the dream house. And they talk about coincidental moments that made them feel magically, mysteriously, deeply connected as starry. Stan, in case you're wondering, was aware that Rachel and Dorothy's relationship was different than most friendships. Dorothy talked to him about it and would write to Rachel about those conversations. Stan and Rachel were close. It was obvious to them, at least, you know, to Stan and Dorothy and Rachel, that Dorothy and Rachel had a special relationship. I don't particularly have an interest in classifying that feeling, you know, <laughs> like saying, oh, you know, they were queer, or oh, you know, it was just friendship. To me, I'm like, who cares, you know? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm interested in how they uh, understood it. And the thing about how Rachel and Dorothy understood their relationship, the thing they did with all those questions they had about it, according to Lita, that has a lot to do with birds particularly with this one little bird called the Viri. A Viri is a pretty nondescript-looking bird. It's, like, brown. The Viri is a kind of thrush. It's not endangered. Its feathers are kind of regular. Its breast is kind of plain. It's kind of white. But the Viri has one really special quality, and that is its song. It sounds like it's made up of two notes at once, like it's echoing itself. And that's because it actually is two notes at once. Viries and other birds have a structure in their throats that evolved to make two-toned songs. They basically have two voice boxes. 
And it's that two-tone song that starts to matter to Rachel and Dorothy. Just a few things. I think it is quite possible for you and me and the Veeries to be together in some magical time and place next June. Their letters show that it becomes a real preoccupation. Darling, how I did wish you were with me last night, for we heard the Veeries most beautifully in the very spot where I first heard them, in the same sort of green twilight, with almost the same magical effect. Seeing the Veeries, hearing the Veeries. First, in answer to your answer, to my Veery letter, I thought the whole episode pretty starry, beginning with the fact that, as I learned the other day, while I was in Rock Creek Park, listening to Veeries and wishing for you, you were walking along your road, listening to wood thrushes and wishing for me. Remember, Rachel and Dorothy live many states apart, but they can both hear the Veeries. As perhaps you found, they seem to never sing in chorus, but responsively, one voice quickly answering another. And all that unearthly quality was there. That unearthly quality and the way Rachel and Dorothy struggle to describe how amazing it is, it starts to sound like some kind of answer to the questions they're asking about their own relationship. And so I think the year has taught us to be content that some of our mystery is beyond comprehension, even as it sheds its radiant beauty on our lives. The one thing I wish today above all else is that as the years pass, we may never come to take for granted this beautiful sympathy and understanding that exist between us, but may always feel their shining wonder as we do today. Their wonder at the call of the Viri, I think, helps them to make sense at the wonder that they feel at their own love. Rachel Carson was obsessed with the idea of wonder. Lita points to an essay she wrote about it in 1956. She talks about wonder in that essay as this feeling, that wonder is this feeling of experiencing a beauty in nature that exceeds our capacity to kind of understand it or cognize it, right? So we experience a feeling when we look at the birds or go in the tide pools of a beauty, of a mystery, of a happiness or a joy that is more than how we name those things, right? This tide pool is beautiful. That doesn't quite get it, right? And Carson was arguing for taking pleasure in that fact, the fact that some things exceed the ways we know how to talk about them. Who knows? You know, if you're feeling these feelings for another woman in 1954, you know, I can imagine a range of feelings that might provoke, right? Disgust, revulsion, fear. In 1954, there weren't a lot of common words for relationships that were more complicated than straight romance or platonic friendship or even queer romance. But as Rachel and Dorothy wrote about their relationship, they stopped trying to give it a word. They chalked it up to wonder. Same category as the Veeries. How can I find the right words to give you this, my perfect birthday gift to you? Here's Dorothy, writing in the spring of 1955. In the field of the intangibles, darling, I can think of nothing else I could offer you that might bring you more delight. Do you know what I'm going to tell you tonight, my beloved? I heard Veeries singing on Southport, in West Southport, on the Dogfish Head Road. And can you believe this? At the juncture of the road where we turned to go sharply around the corner to the dream house. Can you imagine how I felt, darling? 
the end of our quest within a quarter of a mile of the dream house. You must know the warm glow that spread over me, but you must also know the dull ache too, because you aren't here to share it. What I like about the relationship, among other things, is that um, is that it shows us the limits, right? What they what they valued in it was that it shows us the limits of kind of our social categories, right? Of our ways of understanding love and relationships. And they wanted to just sit with that, right? To sit with the mystery and the puzzlement and feel its beauty. After the break, sparkly bird love meets pesticides. Did you know Bird Note also makes a two-minute daily show? Learn fascinating facts, like how oil birds spend their whole lives in darkness, how to tell a crow from a raven, or what the heck a gizzard is. Start your morning with beautiful bird song, seven days a week. Find it at birdnote.org. Or just search for Bird Note wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, now back to the show. By the mid-1950s, Dorothy Freeman is becoming Rachel Carson's primary emotional partner. They write to each other constantly about their families, troubles at home, Rachel's writer's block, and about the times they get to see each other. The surprise meeting at Mechanics Hall when you kissed me and whispered, we didn't plan it this way, did we? Dorothy writing. The hour in your room at the Sheridan, smiling shyly at each other. The moment that same day when I'd put you to rest and started downstairs, when you called, hurry back. And they write especially about Southport, where they go as often as they can. Two nights on the shore alone. Moon, wind, waves, darkness, and phosphorescence. The morning on Ocean Point, a light from the rising sun reflected under the wings of a gull. All the nights I slept at your house in August, but most especially the nights before and after the hurricane. Rachel publishes a new book, Essays About the Edge of the Sea, in 1955, and it's a hit. She dedicates it to Dorothy and to Stan. And then she starts thinking about a new project. She's thinking about the use of insecticides and pesticides, and she's wonders a little bit, you know, if she's going to do this as a book. These thoughts are the seeds of what will become Silent Spring. But when Dorothy hears about Rachel's new research... Freeman is not excited about Carson's next project. The whole thing about blissful wonder at the natural world, this project is really different. I think she thought it was a turn away from what she valued about their relationship with non-human nature, which is like beauty and pleasure, which it is. You know, it's a turn away from that. They go back and forth. Freeman's kind of like, you're bursting the bubble. And Carson... I think that Carson acknowledges these worries that Freeman has. She thinks they're important. But she also says this. Of course, I know you are not happy about my project. Perhaps I can help you to feel differently when we are together, dear. I know you dread the unpleasantness that will inevitably be associated with its publication. That I can understand, darling. But it is something I've taken into account. It will not surprise me. 
So Dorothy Freeman seems to want to look away, right? Or to want to have Carson stay kind of in her lane, right? You know, keep doing your beautiful nature writing and don't go over there to the politics of it, essentially. And it sounds like from that letter that she's worried about public reaction to Carson's book, right? To Carson being attacked. Knowing what I do, there would be no future peace for me if I kept silent. I wish I could feel that you want me to do it. I wish you could feel, as I do, that it is in the deepest sense a privilege, as well as a duty, to have the opportunity to speak out to many thousands of people on something so important. Carson is really mobilized, you know, and she's looking around her and she's talking to scientists and she's seeing really dangerous signs of robins dying in Michigan, right, of the disappearance of bald eagle populations. So there are all kinds of examples that Carson is seeing. And as someone who has gained public authority and public esteem, I think she feels like, as she says in her letter, right, it's not just a duty, it's a privilege. It's something that she is happy to do. And maybe the whole thing sounds like Carson's just an activist and Freeman isn't. But Lita says no, it's more than that. You know, they both see their relationship as so tied into non-human nature, right? Freeman says at one point in the letters, right, our kind of happiness is best suited to the natural world or something like that. And so they both know their love and happiness relies on, right, comes out of their experiences with the viries, with birds, with the ocean, with creatures. Rachel and Dorothy are both aware that without being able to sit with the natural world and marvel at it, their relationship wouldn't have been possible. It would never have been the thing that it was. I think Freeman thinks, let's stay there, right? (laughs) Let's stay in this beautiful feeling. And I think Carson thinks that feeling is at stake. And then the stakes change, dramatically. So Carson is diagnosed with breast cancer in 1960. I believe that Dorothy Freeman comes around before Carson develops cancer, but her support becomes kind of total and unwavering after Carson's cancer diagnosis. Rachel's diagnosis is delivered about six months late. Historians aren't sure why, maybe because her doctors didn't want to worry her. So she was delayed in beginning treatment, in dealing with it. And this is as she's writing Silent Spring. So like, what's right. going on with her at this point? So she's writing Silent Spring. She's, as she's finishing Silent Spring, she's getting sick, like pretty sick. But she finishes the book. And when it's published in 1962, it blows up. And it's very widely read. And the chemical industry mounts kind of a full-scale attack on her. And Rachel takes a stand. She goes out, she gives speeches, she writes opinion pieces. So while she's very sick with cancer, she goes out and mounts this defense of herself. And she talks about how money, right, and capitalist greed really is a huge part The main part of what is pushing the growing use of insecticides and pesticides. And um, where is Dorothy while this is happening? Are they writing? They're writing. They're seeing each other. So Dorothy Freeman's husband, Stan, dies in this time period. They're corresponding a lot about that. Dorothy Freeman is obviously really taken up with that. It's very sad. And then they're talking a little bit about her moving in with Rachel, but that's it's unclear whether that's going to happen. Rachel's still based in Maryland. She's raising her grandnephew. And she's busy. She's touring all the time. In the spring of 1963, she makes her most public appearance on a CBS documentary that airs nationwide. They're doing a major special. 
on Silent Spring and the controversy around it. The chemical industry has a scientist also on the program. In the video, Carson's wearing a button-down blazer and low heels. She talks calmly, evenly. You know, she's wearing a wig at this point because she's been having chemo and she's very sick, but she really pulls herself together and gives this incredibly credible, persuasive performance. The broadcast has a massive audience and public opinion swings even more strongly against the chemical industry. Carson testifies in Congress and over the next few years, there are bills and public debates and eventually the establishment of the EPA and the passing of foundational environmental regulations nationwide. But Rachel doesn't know any of that will happen. She's getting sicker. By the end of 1963, she's stopped touring. Around that time, in a letter to Dorothy, she describes how she's feeling. Not in her body, but about the whole public struggle. I think I let you see last summer what my deeper feelings are about this. When I said I could never again listen happily to a thrush song if I had not done all I could... And last night, the thoughts of all the birds and other creatures and all the loveliness that is in nature came to me with such a surge of deep happiness. Now I had done what I could. I had been able to complete it. Now it had its own life. I've always thought of Silent Spring like a piece of homework. This text that had one purpose, which was to teach people like my grandparents and my parents and me that if humans don't stay out of nature, we'll ruin it. And that will mean death and destruction and a hellscape of birdless silence for the planet. But Lita says that for her, reading Dorothy and Rachel's letters, it totally changed the way she understood Silent Spring. So I think you see in that passage that Carson feels a deep debt to nature for what birds and other creatures have allowed her to feel and be in her life. She's writing the book not only to repay that debt, but for the sake of her own happiness and her pleasure and the love that she feels with Dorothy. And, you know, not just hers, but the rest of us too, you know? Carson was advocating for a world where the kind of love she and Dorothy had would continue to be possible. We think that love is so human, but it's really, you know, I'm going to use an academic term. It's a multi-species assemblage, right? We only get it by our connection with all of these other species and with the non-human natural world. When we talked, Lita told me she'd been reading climate change books about the world burning up, about exactly which technological changes we need to make in order to keep surviving as a species. But she says learning about Rachel and Dorothy's relationship made her feel like all those books were missing this huge thing. What's at stake is not just our lives, or not just kind of our bare survival, or even the bare survival of our society, but it's about the survival of meaningful human lives with pleasures and sadnesses, right? And all of these complex feelings that make up who we are. It's really about our most intimate experiences. You know, that's what I I come away with. In their last fall together, before Rachel died, Rachel and Dorothy went back to Southport. They sat on the porch of their favorite inn, and they watched a cloud of monarch butterflies pass by. A couple months later, Carson wrote Freeman a few last letters. What I want to write of is the joy and fun and gladness we have shared. For these are the things I want you to remember. I want to live on in your memories of happiness. I shall write more of these things. But tonight I'm weary and must put out the light. Meanwhile, there is this word and my love, 
that will always live. Darling, if the heart does take me off suddenly, just know how much easier it would be for me that way. But I do grieve to leave my dear ones. As for me, however, it is quite all right. Not long ago, I sat late in my study and played Beethoven and achieved a feeling of real peace and even happiness. Never forget, dear one, how deeply I have loved you all these years. During the years she knew Rachel, Dorothy Freeman kept a photo of her in her room. In the photo, Rachel isn't looking straight out of the frame at Dorothy. Her head is turned, she's looking out to the side. Freeman always imagined she was listening for the Veeries. This story was produced by Liza Yeager. Rachel Carson's letters were read by Marissa Ortega Welch, and Dorothy Freeman's letters were read by Susan James. Editing was by me, Ashley Ahern, with help from Mark Bramhill. Special thanks to Jackson Roach. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. You can check out some photos of Rachel and Dorothy at our website, birdnote.org presents. This has been a special production from Bird Note Presents. If you want to be first to know about our upcoming long-form storytelling about birds, make sure you subscribe and tell your friends. Thanks so much for listening.